This morning I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles and make your way to the Old Testament book of Judges. The Old Testament book of Judges. It's been amazing to me, and I mentioned this last week, how the Lord has impressed upon me certain messages that have nothing to do with what we've been studying in, uh, in other areas, for instance, the book of Ruth or a study of the book of Ephesians and other messages that I preach. But in the midst of preparing, uh, the Lord has dovetailed certain elements and principles of truth together. And I believe that we see that again this morning in our morning message out of the book of Judges. And we're going to be looking at one verse in the book of Judges, Judges chapter 5, Judges chapter 5, verse number 23. If you have ever studied this verse in depth, I would be shocked. It is one of the more obscure verses in Scripture, Judges chapter 5, verse 23. Let's read that, Judges 5, verse 23. Curse ye marrows, said the angel of the Lord. Curse ye bitterly the inhabitants thereof, because they came not to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. The title of the message this morning is very simply, The Curse of Marrows. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the time we could be in your house this morning. Lord, we do rejoice that you put in our hearts a desire to be in your house on the first day of the week, that we might worship you, that we might study your word and hear uh, what you have to say to us from your word. We thank you, Lord, that we're able to sing uh, these old hymns and songs of praise to you. And Lord, I pray that each person that's here this morning has a heart that is right with you. And I pray that as we look at this passage, that we would be challenged, that we might be living in a way that is pleasing in your sight here on this earth, And specifically, that we are looking at the needs of others, and in particular, the needs of our brethren, as they engage in spiritual warfare. Lord, help us, give us grace and strength, and we will give you all praise, honor, and glory. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The curse of Meroz. We, you and I, as children of the Lord... We have a solemn responsibility to help God's people. And there are serious ramifications if we neglect that responsibility. Now for context here in Judges chapter number 5 with our text verse. And it's been a while since we've gone through the book of Judges and studied all the different judges that the Lord had appointed uh, to deliver Israel. But you remember... That in the book of Judges, and here again you'll see how this kind of dovetails in with what we've been studying in the book of Ruth. In the book of Judges there's a pattern that the people of God engaged in, right? And it is symbolic of our Christian lives. They enjoyed rest from the Lord. But that rest wasn't good enough for them and then they rebelled against the Lord. And as they rebelled against the Lord, the Lord brought retribution against them for the purpose of what? causing and working repentance. And so the people of God would repent. And God gave them judges to deliver them, and He would restore them. Okay. Now, in Judges chapter number 4, 
we find that the Israelites are in one of these situations where they have rebelled against God, and because they had rebelled against God, God had placed them under bondage to King Jabin and the Canaanites. And they were in bondage for 20 years. And then this woman by the name of Deborah had her spirit stirred up. And she did, sadly, what no man was willing to do. She stood up and said, God will deliver us from the Canaanites. She acted, and again I say shamefully to guys like Barak and others that were there that could have been the leaders, but they didn't act. She did. And she acted and God delivered Israel. God allowed Deborah and Barak to defeat Sisera, who was the general of King Jabin's Canaanite army. Now, in chapter 5, what we have here is a song that Deborah wrote to record and recite her praises to God for the victory that God wrought through Deborah, Barak, and the other men, warriors of Israel. Now, we get to verse 23. Verse 23 is right in the midst of this song that Deborah is singing and she's recorded praising God. And verse 23 records God's judgment. God's judgment on Meroz. And you'll find that this is the only time that Meroz is mentioned in the Bible. The word Meroz literally means refuge in the Hebrew. And they should have been a refuge. They should have been there to help the children of Israel as they battled against Sisera and Jabin and the Canaanites. Meroz is believed to have been a place in northern Palestine. Its exact location is unknown. The only thing recorded about Meroz is that they did not help God's people. And I say God's people, and we're going to look at that in particular uh, as it relates to one of the lessons that we'll learn from examining this passage. Now, how does all of this, how does any of this apply to us? How does it help us? What do we learn from the curse of Meroz? Well, there are four lessons that we learn that I want us to examine in turn this morning from the curse of Meroz. And I believe in so doing, it will help us in our spiritual walk It will help us in our practical walk here on this earth. These four lessons, I'll give them to you, and then we'll get into each of the lessons individually. The first lesson that we learned from the curse of Meroz is the Lord's interest in affairs on earth. The second lesson, the Lord's intense imprecation against Meroz. The third lesson, the Lord's warning against inactivity when we are able to assist. And the fourth lesson, the Lord's identification of his or excuse me, with his people when his people are attacked. The Lord's identification with his people when his people are attacked. We see all of these lessons from verse 23 as it relates to the curse of Meroz. So let's get into these. The first lesson that we learn 
is the Lord's interest in affairs on earth. Notice verse 23, it reads, Curse ye Maros, said the angel of the Lord. Now I want to say this morning that I believe that the angel of the Lord is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And in the Old Testament, when you see the angel of the Lord mentioned normally and usually, it is referring to the image of the invisible God, the Lord Jesus Christ. In the days before Jesus took on a body of flesh, we might refer to the angel of the Lord as the pre-incarnate appearances of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's not our intent this morning to try to prove that to you, uh, you can go back and look at various instances where Jesus is clearly identified as the angel of the Lord. Now, who is it that passes judgment? It's God. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And I hope that you've already come to some sort of an understanding that when we talk about the curse of Meraz, we're talking about the judgment of God upon Meraz. God is the only one that can do that. The Lord Jesus Christ is the only one that can pass judgment. Jesus, this pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus heard, saw, and knew everything that happened in this battle between the Israelites and the Canaanites. And He knew, the Lord knew, He heard, He saw everything that Meros did or did not do. Now this leads us to conclude that the Lord has a definite interest in the affairs of what takes place here on this earth. And you say, well, duh, isn't that a given? And I say, no, it's not a given. It is not a given. There would be those that go back and look at our, the, our founding fathers and trying to rewrite the history of our nation and they try to portray some of the founding fathers as deists, and no doubt some of them were deists, you know, instead of Christians. And what did a deist believe? A deist believed that God created everything and, and then left the earth to its own. Kind of like you wind up a clock and then you let the clock run. Hey, there are still folks today that think that God doesn't have any interest upon, about what goes on upon this earth. Think about this. Think about the mistake people make. By and large today, people think that God doesn't care what happens on the earth, that God doesn't hear what happens, He doesn't see what happens, and He doesn't know what happens. I can prove this to you, and we've in the past few months we've gone through multiple messages dealing with cultural issues in our day, and what is happening in our nation and the way that our politics have gone and the ungodly wickedness that is prevalent in, thing, in institutions like our public schools and so forth and so on, it's very clear that people don't care about God and they don't think that God has any idea of what's taking place. Because if they did, their actions might be a little bit different. Now this is a biblical truth. This is a biblical doctrine. You all remember this guy by the name of Asaph, uh, who was who was a guy who became disoriented and bitter when he looked at 
the way that things were going here on this earth. And he looked at how the wicked and the ungodly prospered. And in Psalm 73, verse 11, he's describing how the wicked operate here on this earth. And in Psalm 73, verse 11, he writes, And they say, How doth God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? And what he's literally saying is the wicked and the ungodly uh, think that God is, is disinterested with what happens on this earth, that He can't see what takes place, that He can't hear what is spoken. This is a thought that is prevalent throughout the entirety of the Old Testament and on to the, into the New Testament as well. How about this? I'm just going to read a couple of verses to you this morning and we're going to turn to one passage to look at together. How about this in Isaiah chapter 29 and verse number 15? In Isaiah 29 verse 15, Isaiah the prophet writes, Woe unto them that seek deep to hide their counsel from the Lord, and their works are in the dark, and they say, now get this, and they say, Who seeth us, and who knoweth us? In other words, we can do what we want, God doesn't see. He's not interested about what happens on earth. He doesn't care about what happens on earth. Now, it's one thing to say that the ungodly do that and have that attitude against God. But what about God's people? Do not God's people at times act as though God is disinterested about what we do on this earth and God is disinterested about what happens on this earth? Of course they do. Listen to this in Ezekiel chapter 8 and verse number 12. In Ezekiel chapter 8, verse number 12, the Bible reads, Then said he unto me, Son of man, hast thou seen what the ancients of the house of Israel do in the dark, every man in the chambers of his imagery? Now, stop there for a moment. Who are the ancients? These are the mature, wise leaders of Israel, or they were supposed to be. These were the people that led in the worship of God. These were the priests and the prophets and the rulers over the people of God. And God delivers this message and He says, Do you see what they do in secret? Let's read on. For they say, The Lord seeth us not, the Lord hath forsaken the earth. That is the attitude of the leaders of the people of God. The people of God, even at point at points in their lives, mistake that God is not interested about what goes on here on this earth. And if God isn't interested about what goes on and God doesn't see or hear or know, then I can do whatever I want. I'll never face the judgment of God. And you know what? That's a mistake. That's a mistake. Because if there's one thing that we learn from the curse of Merah, we learn that the Lord is interested in the affairs that take place on earth. So we see the mistake that people make, and this is really brought home in the book of Job. Turn with me, if you would, to the book of Job. Job chapter 22. If you can find your way to the book of Psalms, then you just turn back one book and you'll find the book of Job. In Job chapter 22, I want you to notice here verses 12 through 14. Now in Job 22... This is not Job speaking. This is Eliphaz the Temanite. And Eliphaz is accusing Job of embracing this Epicurean view 
that God doesn't see, know, or care what takes place here on this earth. I want you to notice what Eliphaz says in Job 22, verse 12. Job 22, verse 12. Is not God in the height of heaven? And behold the heights of the stars, how high they are. And thou sayest, how doth God know? Can he judge through the dark cloud? Thick clouds are a covering to him, now watch, that he seeth not, and he walketh in the circuit of heaven. In other words, God is in heaven. We're here on this earth. God isn't interested on what, in what takes place on this earth. In fact, God is covered by the... Think about what a ridiculous thought this is. God is covered by the dark clouds, and He can't see what takes place on this earth. That is a ridiculous view that some make. And even at times in our own Christian lives, we live as though God doesn't see, hear, or know. He does. Now, notice the Lord's interest in the affairs of that take place here on this earth, the mistake that people make. But the, what they do in making the mistake is this. They forget the matter of God's character. They forget the matter of God's character. In other words, who is God? People conjure up this view of God that is not at all... Uh, equivalent with God that is revealed in the Holy Scriptures, just because you think something about God doesn't make it so. Go to the inspired, inerrant, infallible Word of God and see how the Bible describes God. God is omnipresent. That means that there isn't any place that God isn't. The dark clouds cannot hide the affairs that take place on earth from God. God is omnipresent. God is omniscient. That means that not only is He everywhere, but He knows all things. Think about how ridiculous it is to try to hide something from God. To say that, well, you know, I know I'm supposed to do this, but God doesn't care. God can't hear. God doesn't see. So I'll just do what I want to do. And folks, you make the application today. It can be spiritual attendance in the house of God, reading the Holy Scriptures, speaking to the Lord. It can be practical as it relates to our duties and relationships, our duties to society. You know, I know that God wants me to be a model citizen, but I don't have to abide by this law. That's a stupid law. God hears, sees, and knows. We don't get to choose and pick. God is our judge. And so we need to think about the matter of God's character. Here's the question. Is God interested in what takes place on this earth? You better believe He is. And you better believe that God sees, hears, and knows. He saw what Meros did. He heard their excuses. And now there's a payday that's coming. Watch this in the book of Jeremiah. Turn with me over to the book of Jeremiah. And I want to direct your attention to Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 23 through 25. Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 23 through 25. Notice what the prophet Jeremiah writes about God's character, the matter of God's character, and the fact that He is omnipresent and omniscient. In Jeremiah chapter 23, 
Jeremiah records the words of God himself. Watch. Jeremiah 23, verse 23. Am I a God at hand, saith the Lord, and not a God afar off? Can any hide himself in secret places that I shall not see him? Saith the Lord, do not I fill heaven and earth? Saith the Lord, I have heard what the prophets said that prophesy lies in my name, saying, I have dreamed, I have dreamed. Do you see what God is saying? You, you have deluded yourself to think that somehow I'm not interested about what takes place here on this earth. My prophets have prophesied false messages. And they think I don't care. They think I don't see. Listen, beloved. God is interested in the affairs on this earth. He is interested in how His children live and walk here on this earth. I don't mean to paint the picture this morning that we are sinless. That's to deny the teaching of the Word of God. There is in our flesh no good thing. Those of us that have been saved by the grace of God and have placed our faith in the finished blood of the Lord Jesus, the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ and Him shedding His blood, we are forgiven. We stand right spiritually in the sight of God, and yet we still have that old man, that flesh to contend with, and we sin against God. But do we delude ourselves into thinking that God doesn't care how I live? I can do whatever I want. God doesn't see. After all, I'm saved by the grace of God. I'm going to heaven. I can live however I want here on this earth. I can shun my responsibility. Mayrose, and I'm going to prove this to you here in just a moment, Mayrose had a responsibility to have the back of the children of Israel. And what did they do? They didn't help. And God saw it. And God heard it. And God knew about it. And God was interested in it. You and I must take our responsibility seriously. The Lord has an interest in the affairs here on this earth. That's the first lesson that we learn from the curse of Mayrose. Notice the second lesson. Again in verse 23. Here we see the Lord's intense imprecation against Mayrose. The Lord's intense imprecation against Mayrose. Notice in verse number 23 of Judges chapter number 5. The Lord writes here, and let's read all that we've studied up to this point. Curse ye Mayrose, said the angel of the Lord. Curse ye bitterly the inhabitants thereof. Here we see the Lord's intense imprecation against Maros. I mentioned this in the opening and introductory comments. Nothing is known of Maros except the curse that God pronounced upon it. There is no other there's no other historical references about Maros. What we have is what we have in verse 23. All we know is this, this curse that God pronounced upon Maros. Now let's think first of all about the meaning of the curse. In verse 23 it says, Curse ye Maros, said the angel of the Lord, Curse ye bitterly the inhabitants thereof. Now the word curse in verse 23 in the Hebrew, it literally means to execrate. To execrate. What does execrate mean? It means to imprecate evil upon something or someone to damn something or someone or to denounce something or someone this is uh, 
Well, I'm going to chase a little rabbit. We need to be careful about our language and what we listen to. God is the only one that can do this, and sometimes we find ourselves listening to movies and music and things like that that blasphemes the name of God. And I'll tell you what, if there's one thing that should cause you to turn a channel or turn something off, is if they say the God, and then you know what. We don't need to be involved in that. God is the only one that can do what He does, and we don't flippantly throw around the denouncements of God. The meaning of the word curse is to execrate. Now, this is not some supernatural occultic curse that is exercised through reciting some incantation that you might see uh, somehow displayed through a witch or somebody like that. That's not what this is. What the Lord is doing is the Lord is imprecating judgment upon Mary. When you see the, the word curse, it means God is judging Meros. He is invoking or calling down judgment upon Meros. Having considered the meaning of the word curse, let's look at the mark of the curse. Because the point that we're making here is that we learn this lesson that the Lord has an intense imprecation against Meros. Not only is he interested upon what, about what happens here upon this earth, but he takes action and it can be an intense imprecation. Now think about the marks of the curse. He, he says in verse 23, Curse ye Meros, curse ye bitterly the inhabitants thereof. Now, in your English Bible, you have three words. Curse ye bitterly. That is one Hebrew word. And would you care to guess what that Hebrew word is? It's the same Hebrew word that is translated curse at the beginning of the verse. Now what do we learn from that? We learn that it is placed there for emphasis. It is a double curse. Curse ye, curse ye, saith the Lord. It's a curse that could not be recovered from. It is a judgment that was not to be temporary. It was permanent. I've mentioned it multiple times. But Meros is never again mentioned in Scripture. Its exact site as to where it was located is unknown. It's like it appeared and then it's uh, taken off of the face of the earth. And there is no doubt that the extinction of Meros resulted from its sin that it committed against the Lord. Do you know when the Lord pronounces judgment? We need to be careful. Because the Lord's judgment can be fatal and permanent. We say, and, and this is not a message today to try to scare God's people. It's a message designed to help us understand the seriousness of of walking in a way that pleases the Lord and doing what the Lord tells us to do instead of just thinking only about ourselves. In our society today, even with the Lord's people, they think only about themselves. Mayrose is here, and we'll talk about this momentarily, but apparently very close to the battle that's taking place. And they had the ability to do something to assist the people of God in the battle. 
to help Deborah and Barak and the others. And what did they do? Absolutely nothing. They could have thought, well, you know, God's got this. We don't need to do anything. We'll just sit back and, and see the Lord prevail. Now, you know, if God tells, that, tells us that in His Word, that's one thing. But to try to presume upon God's good grace is something entirely different. And so we find here that Mayrose is, is, is <laughs> they're not doing what God would have them do. They're thinking about their own, their own cush position. And God brings a judgment that is a permanent judgment. We think oftentimes in our lives, well, you know what, I'm just going to live my life to myself and I'm going to do my own thing and I'm going to make sure that I take care of me and my family. And we, we ignore what God tells us to do. And we say again, well, God loves me. He's not going to really do anything to me. And then all of a sudden, tragedy hits. You know, God chastens His people. God chastens His people and disciplines His people to get our attention, to cause us to repent and make things right with Him. Now watch this. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Mark. I want you to notice Mark chapter number, uh, chapter number 11. We're going to read a few verses in the book of Mark. And I want you to notice how the Lord Jesus Christ judges this fig tree. Notice the judgment of God upon this fig tree. And I want you to notice the terminology that is used. In Mark chapter number 11, look at verse number 11. In Mark chapter number 11, verse number 11. 11. And Jesus entered into Jerusalem and into the temple, and when He had looked round about all things, and how the eventide was come, He went out into Bethany with the twelve. And on the morrow, when they were come forth from, come from Bethany, He was hungry. And seeing a fig tree afar off, having leaves, he came, if haply he might find anything thereon. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for the time of figs was not yet. And Jesus answered and said unto it, No man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. And his disciples heard it. Now watch what happens uh, a little bit later on in verse number 20. And in the morning as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, calling to remembrance, saith unto him, Master, behold, the fig tree which thou cursest, which thou cursest, is withered away. Nobody would gather fruit from that fig tree ever again. You know what happens in our lives? We lose our focus. And we're going down a road that God doesn't intend us to go down. And we say, hey, everything's great. I'm saved by the grace of God. God will always deal kindly with me. And the gifts and the talents that you have to serve the Lord, that you neglect, God can dry those talents up so that you're never able to use them again. You say, well, I'm going to forsake the Lord for my job or my family or whatever the case is. God can judge and cause you the loss of that which is hindering you in being completely sold out to God. You don't think God can do that? God can dry up a fig tree from the roots up because He found no fruit? Do you think that, that, that verse, those verses are in the Bible to teach us the power of God? Of course not. 
They're there to teach us the fact that if we are walking and we have no fruit whatsoever, God has no use for us. Now, God cursed bitterly forever. He judged Maros. He doesn't always do that. But the lesson you and I should learn is that he can and he does do that. W. Ewing, an old preacher who wrote in the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, wrote this. It is a strange fate shared with Corazon to be preserved from oblivion only by the record of a curse. The bitterness in the treatment of Mayrose, not found in the references to any of the other delinquents, must be due to the special gravity of her offenses. And he mentions Corazon. Read in the New Testament. Corazon is mentioned twice in the New Testament, along with Bethsaida. It's where the Lord says, Woe unto Corazon and Bethsaida. Do you know the only time they're mentioned is, is when God passes judgment upon them? God can and does do that, and you and I should learn from that. We should perk up and say, Hey, wait a minute, I need to investigate and examine whether or not I'm walking in a way that's pleasing unto the Lord, lest the curse of Merod pass upon me. The third lesson we see. The Lord's warning against inactivity when we are able to assist. Now notice, in back in Judges chapter number 5, verse number 23, the Bible says here that Maros is cursed. They are cursed bitterly because they came not to the help of the Lord to the help of the Lord against the mighty. The Lord warns us, and we've kind of touched upon this as we looked at uh, the uh, intense imprecation that he pronounced against Myros. The Lord warns us against inactivity when we are able to assist. Now here we're talking about a particular situation. You have the ability to help. You have the ability to deliver. And what do you do? You look the other way. I want you to know that the Lord warns us against inactivity when we are able to assist because we are expected to assist. We are expected to assist. It is generally believed that uh, Mayrose was close to the scene of the conflict. They had an opportunity to render aid and special assistance to Israel, and yet they refused to do so. And because they had the ability to do it, God held them accountable for not acting. Now look, there are many times in our lives where we just don't have the capacity or the ability to help. But there are times in our lives when we do have the capacity and the ability to help. Have you watched the news lately? And I hesitate to say that because it's so depressing to watch the news. And so we try to balance... Our, our, our responsibilities of being a good citizen and knowing what's taking place in our nation with being, you know, depressed and, and, and vexed over what we see in the news. How many times have you seen recorded by somebody with a cell phone an attack upon another person? And the person is recording the attack, but they do nothing to stop the attack. There are times when we have the ability to stop the attack. There are times when we have the ability to 
Be active and assist. Now, think about Meros and contrast Meros with the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali. In Judges 5, look back to verse 18. Judges 5, verse 18. Zebulon and Naphtali were a people that jeoparded their lives unto death in the high places of the field. These were people and tribes that exposed. The word jeoparded there means literally exposed. They exposed their lives unto death. They were willing to do something to help the people of God in the battle. And God thought it fit enough to include that in the canon of Scripture. You know what we're supposed to do? We're supposed to be willing to jeopard or jeopardize our lives when we can assist our brethren. How about this? If you think, well, preacher, that's only the Old Testament. Well, how about what God said through John the Apostle in 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, where He said, Hereby perceive we the love of God, because He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. We ought to. When a brother or sister has a need, we ought to be willing to sacrifice to meet that need when we are able to do so. To look the other way is to incur the judgment of God and the chastisement of God. James Stewart, an old preacher, wrote this. It was therefore a neglect of duty. They did not fight against their brethren, but they would not fight for them. It was a purely negative sin, a sin of omission, but it was nonetheless a distinct and positive no to the call of duty. Now we, we have military members. Those that served and those that served long enough to retire from the military. And what were we called to do? To answer the call. When we took the oath, we said we were willing to give our lives to defend this nation. And if we are willing to do that, then why are God's people not willing to give our lives and lay down our lives for the brethren when they need it? Israel could have used the help. They needed the help. And where was Meros? Where? They weren't on the front line helping, even though apparently they had the ability to do so. We're expected to assist and we ought to engage when we are able. Galatians 6 verse 10 is as true today as it was when Paul wrote it. As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. In our age today, it's not likely yet that we will have to pick up arms and protect our brethren here in this land. Now, very quickly, we're moving to a situation. Who knows what's going to happen? But when your brother or sister is involved in the fight, of all people, you ought to have their back. You ought not to let others talk bad about your church or your brothers or sisters. Shame on you. We're in this together. Curse ye marrows, said the Lord. They didn't help the people of God. We ought to help the people of God. Brother Spurgeon wrote this, and I read a portion of this quote Recently, when we were over at Faith Baptist Church last month, and I preached on the topic of uh, the compounding effect of standing fast. Now listen, this is a quote from Brother Spurgeon. Kindred has its obligations. 
We have received much by means of the efforts and sufferings of the saints in years gone by, and if we do not make some return by giving our best energies, we are unworthy to be enrolled in her ranks. Others are combating the heirs of the age manfully, or excavating perishing ones from amid the ruins of the fall, and if we fold our hands in idleness, we had need be warned, lest the curse of Mayrose fall upon us. It is a cowardly pride which would choose a downy pillow and a silken couch for a soldier of the cross. We are blessed above measure here in this country. All sorts of creature comforts. And what do we do when our brethren are engaged in the battle? Oh, well, you know, I don't have a dog in this fight. Yeah, you do. If it's the Lord's fight... This was Israel's fight, and guess what? (laughs) Let's talk about the fourth lesson we learned. It was the Lord's fight. Look at this. Look at the fourth lesson. The Lord identifies with His people when His people are attacked. What does the Bible say in Judges 5, verse 23? Curse ye, Meroth, said the angel of the Lord. Curse ye bitterly the inhabitants thereof, because they came not to the help of the Lord. To the help of the Lord against the mighty. Now, if you think that God is trying to teach us that He couldn't defend the people of Israel without Meroz's help, you've misinterpreted what the Bible says. God is able to do what He wants. But you know what He wants? He wants His people to be involved. God uses human instrumentality and that does not in any way take away from the glory of God. After all, it was the sword of the Lord and, read it, Gideon. Gideon doesn't get any of the honor and glory that belongs to the Lord, but the Lord uses uses human instrumentality. Now, attacking God's people is the same as attacking Him. You ought to be careful about that. People ought to be careful about You know, they send me an email and a letter attacking me because I preach the Word of God and they don't agree with what I preach. You ought to be careful. I belong to the Lord. Now, if I'm preaching something that's false, by all means, you correct me from the Word of God. But when I'm preaching the Word of God and you don't like it and you get upset and you want to write me a scathing email attacking my character, you ought to be very careful. You You should be careful. Because God has the back of His people. He's got our back. And there's sooner or later coming a day when as Moses stood before the camp of Israel after Moses had gone up into the mount, Moses and Joshua had gone up to receive the plates from the Lord and the people of God sat down there and they they convinced Aaron to make this golden calf and they began to be debauched in their service uh, that they... Uh, somehow thought was unto God but it was only to their flesh and Moses comes back down and he destroys the throws the plates down and destroys the plates he destroys the golden calf and makes them drink of the ashes of that and then he says what? Who is on the Lord's side? Who is on the Lord's side? God's got a people. God's got the back of his people. Do you not see that God says that when Mayrose refused to help, it was as though they were not helping him? He didn't need the help. But they refused to help the children of Israel. God is able to deliver. 
even absent the help of man. Now last week we preached a message uh, on the Valley of Barakah. And there was a trend in that. And that trend was that the battle is the Lord's. God is able to deliver. In fact, turn back to Judges chapter 4 and bear with me. We're just we're, we're almost there. Okay, Judges chapter 4 and I want you to notice how God delivered. God delivered. Notice Judges chapter number 4. Now God says in our text verse that Meroz is cursed because they did not come to the help of the Lord against the mighty. Against the mighty. Now watch. Look at Judges chapter 4 verses 13 through 15. In Judges 4 verses 13 through 15. And Sisera, remember that's the general of, of the armies of Canaan. And Sisera gathered together all his chariots, even 900 chariots of iron and all the people that were with him from Harasheth of the Gentiles unto the river of Kishon. You think the Israelites could have used a little manpower here? Maybe from Meros? This is the mighty that the Lord is referring to. Now read on. And Deborah said unto Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord hath delivered Sisera into thine hand. Is not the Lord gone out before thee? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor and 10,000 men after him. And the Lord discomfited Sisera and all his chariots and all his hosts with the edge of the sword before Barak, so that Sisera lighted down off his chariot and fled away on his feet. God wrought this victory in spite of the lack of help from Meros. God didn't forget about that. God didn't overlook that. But God was able to deliver even absent the help of men. God identifies with His people. We're not in this alone. If we're doing what God wants us to do, it's the Lord's battle. I'll close with these verses in 2 Chronicles chapter 32. And these are, these are verses that, that, that describe Hez, King Hezekiah, who was another godly king of the southern kingdom of Judah. Hezekiah receives word that the, the king of Syria, Sennacherib, is coming against the people of God and he sends... Uh, he sends Rashika to uh, demean the people of God and mock the people of God and the people of God. And he's speaking in their own language. And the people of God are terrified and affrighted. And I want you to listen what the Lord says to His people in Second Chronicles chapter 32, verses 7 and 8. Be strong and courageous. Be not afraid nor dismayed for the king of Assyria, nor for all the multitude that is with him, for there be more with us than with him. Verse 8, with him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people rested themselves upon the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. Man, what a leader. Oh, the Syrians are coming, they're going to kill us. No, God's with us. They have an arm of flesh. God's going to deliver us. This is the Lord's battle. Man, listen. We ought to be careful when we attack the Lord's people. Because the Lord identifies with His people. And He has something to say. When people attack His people, and when people don't stand with His people. Cursed ye, curse ye Maros, said the angel of the Lord. Curse ye bitterly the inhabitants thereof because they came not to the help of the Lord to the help of the Lord against the mighty 
Four lessons we learn from the curse of Meros. The Lord's interest in the affairs on earth. The Lord's intense imprecations against Meros. The Lord's warning against inactivity when we are able to assist. And then lastly, the Lord's identification with His people when His people are attacked. May God bless us by learning these lessons from the curse of Meros. Let's pray.